So if you um, are just joining us to, uh, today and haven't been with us what, since last week, we are um, st- taking a break from our uh, series throughout the book of Judges to focus on um, our mission, which is to be loved and love. Now, to be loved and love, there's a lot to this, but one of the things that's for sure is that we need to get there. And so to get there, we need to repent and to turn from ourselves, to turn from our godless ways and to turn to God so that we might be loved. And um, last week, I spent time talking about repentance, turning from our godlessness to God and what that means. But today, what we're going to begin looking at are four different scenarios in which we don't look to God. There are four particular ways, and this is just one of the ways, that we do not look to God. And so today's uh, conversation, sermon, is on the, on the topic of control. Control. Do you have control of your life? Or does God have control of your life? What is this in dealing with control? So indeed, we all can be um, a little over-controlling at times, I think. And so we're going to look at control and how we need to repent of our hyper-control. If you will, we have... Um, Bible's in the back. If you haven't grabbed one, you can get up and do that. If not, you have on your phone or your tablet. Um, Genesis 3. We're going to be looking. It says in the bulletin, verses 1 through 24. But we're just going to look verses 1 through 13 and then 20 through 24. Um, so I'll read this. You can follow along as I read this. Um, and then we'll study God's word together. So Genesis 3, 1 through 13 and then 20 through 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave it to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now skip down to verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. 
He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There are three stories in the Bible that I want to just make mention of before jumping into the rest of the story. The first story is a well-known story of Abraham. Abraham was promised by God that he would have children as numerous as the stars. But when he became old and had no children, he had to adapt to himself, is God living up to his word? So he and his wife, Sarah, decided, you know what? Maybe what God was really going after was, was that, 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 that we would have children through another. And so Sarah and Abram t- took Hagar, Sarah's maid, and said, why don't you have a child with Hagar? And so that's what ended up happening. And what, ha- what ended up happening was that Ishmael was born to Hagar and to Abraham. But here's what happened. Ishmael, if you know anything about scripture, became a thorn in the side of Israel for the rest of their days. It was difficult. Abram, Abram or Abraham and Sarah didn't trust God, and the result was generations of difficulties for his promised child, Isaac. The second story, Moses, in Numbers chapter 20. Moses was commanded by God to speak to a rock that it might provide water for the Israelites as they wandered throughout the wilderness out of Egypt. But instead of speaking to the rock as God has commanded, Moses struck the rock twice out of anger for a faithless people. The water came out, but there was a significant consequence for Moses for disobeying what God had said. And the consequence was Moses himself was left out of the promised land. The best that he got was seeing it from a cliff in the last days of his life. The third story, Saul. Saul was the king of Israel in the beginning of the Israel kingdom nature. And right before battle, he was told by the prophet Samuel to wait seven days to make a sacrifice before heading into the battle. By the seventh day, Samuel hadn't shown up and Saul was getting very antsy and anxious about whether or not you know, the, the sacrifice was going to be made before entering into battle with the Philistines. And so he decided in his own power and in his own strength to make the sacrifice himself and then move into the battle. But if you know anything about this story, this act of distrust, taking matters into his own hand, led to his crown being removed from his head and placed on someone named David. Each of these stories that I've mentioned to you is a picture of resorting to themselves rather than to trusting God. Actions that resulted in negative consequences for each of these individuals. The truth of these individuals and these stories apply to us today. With the exception of maybe a few babies in this room, we all can relate to ways that we have sought to control our difficult circumstances in our own strength. We all can relate to that. Whether it be a difficult situation for your kids and setting up your kids in such a way that nothing bad will ever come up to them. Or or you you get into a social situation and you, you lie or you cheat or whatever it might be. These difficult circumstances where you're just like, I've got to resolve, rely on myself to deal with these things. But here's the thing. As is the case in these first three stories, is often the case in your life, is that when we take matters into our own hand, when we lie, when we over control, we try to manipulate things so that we get what we want, they ultimately will end up as absolute and utter failures. 
The consequences for our over-control are great and severe. Such controlling attitudes and a controlling lifestyle is exhausting. If you've ever wondered why we have an anxiety problem in this world, it's because we think we can control our world. There's a reason why all these anxiety medicines are the, the number one medicines in this world. Because we have this belief that we are like God. We're omniscient, we're omnipotent, and we're omnipresent. Friends, we are not. You might feel, though, that there's no other way. You might feel like you are all you got. You might feel like this is it. But let me introduce some doubt into your control. Are you all you got? Is that it? Are you the Lord of your own life? This is the question we are pondering today. Of course, the answer to that question is no, you are not Lord of your life. But what we have to get at, what we have to think about is, okay, if you are not the Lord of your life, if you shouldn't trust yourself in these difficult circumstances and in the situations in which you face yourself, who then do you trust? The answer to this is you trust the Lord. This is ultimately where I want to focus your attention is to trust the Lord, to give up your own reliance on yourself and to trust the Lord, to repent of your godless hyper control of your life and to trust the Lord. And the question is, is the Lord trustworthy? Is God trustworthy? Can you trust him in the midst of your difficult circumstances? Is he trustworthy? This is why I want to take you to the story that I read to you this morning from, from Adam and Eve. This famous story out of Genesis 3. Adam and Eve had broken God's law. They took matters into their own hands thinking they could be like God. And once again they find themselves in a difficult circumstance. They realize that they are naked. And they have this shame about them. And, and, and as a result of this shame... They tried to control the situation by doing what? <clears throat> by going over to a tree or a bush and, and putting together these leaves and sewing these to cover up their nakedness and shame. They, they thought, surely this would fix what they're experiencing. Surely this would fix the shame that they were enduring in the, in the sin that they, 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 they had. But then they hear God walking in the garden. And what is it they did? They hid. Their way of dealing with their shame fell flat on his face. And then God calls to them. That's a scary moment. They had done one thing that God told them not to do. To eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now God is calling them to talk to him. We've got this story. And here's the story. Is God trustworthy? Adam and Eve, they didn't believe that God is trustworthy, even in their shame. But this is what I want to show you. That in the moments that followed, them coming out of the bushes, and, in, and encountering this God, who had told them to not eat of the tree, they encountered a gracious God. God does three things for them, and this is what we're going to study and what I want you to see is that the three actions of God to them in this moment is incredibly gracious. Kids, that, that works for grace too. Gracious and grace, it works, okay? Grace, gracious, that's a heart. Fill that out. God is incredibly gracious. And when we see the grace of God, even in the midst of these difficult circumstances, 
Ultimately, what we can do is we can repent of our hyper-control of our lives and rely on this God who is indeed gracious and merciful and worthy to be trusted even amidst life's most difficult circumstances. So what are the three things that God does in the midst of their difficult circumstance, in the midst of their nakedness and shame? What are the three things that God does? First, he calls them. Secondly, he clothes them. And last, last but not least, he chastens them. Now, kids, we'll get into what chasing means in a minute. So just hang tight, okay? I'll tell you what chasing Adults, we'll get into that too. Or you might be going, what's that? Chasing, we'll get to that too. But these are the three actions of God, and they are full of grace. Each action is full of grace. When we see a gracious God, we indeed can lean in and trust him even more. So let's look at these three actions of God. First, he calls them, or if you will, he calls us. He calls us. Having eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one thing that God had forbidden Adam and Eve to do, Adam and Eve were now tainted. They had sinned in their hopes of becoming like God. And this resulted in great shame and guilt. One would think that God would quickly give up on Adam and Eve. Indeed, he said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But this is not what happens. God doesn't dismiss them immediately. He doesn't kill them in the moment. Does he not? He says, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But he doesn't kill them. No, God calls out to them. And what does he say? Verse 9, he says these three words. Where are you? These are the first three words. He calls out to them. Where are you? Here's God calling out to Adam and Eve in their ungodly state. And yes, it's a scary moment. But I think we have in these three words a beautiful picture of a gracious God reaching out to an ungodly people. A gracious God reaching out to an ungodly people. Where are you? Think about that. The first thing that God does to a people that have disobeyed him. He asks, where are you? Now, I believe that God continues to do this for you and I. He will confront us in our sin. He will bring to our surface, the the surface of our mind, the desire for ungodly control. And he'll do this in whatever means necessary. He'll do it through preachers. He'll do it through friends. He'll do it through spouses. He'll do it through parents and so on and so forth. We will be called out for the sin that we do, the wrongdoing that we have in our life. I'll take it a step further. We know that we are being called out and our, and our conscience is pricked when we do one of two things. We do what Adam and Eve did. We know we're being called out when we do two things, at least these two things. We hide or we blame. Consider what Adam and Eve did. When they sin, what did they do? They hid. And like Adam and Eve, we try to hide from our, our mistakes. We'll lie to those around us about what we've done. We cover our tracks. We delete our web history. We project a confident self when inside we're deeply insecure. We hide. But here's the thing. If we're hiding, what I want you to see is God's calling you. If you're hiding in your conscience with whatever control you have, God's calling you. Where are you? So that's one of two things that we can do. We can hide. What's the second one? We can blame And we do this all the time. 
Recall what Adam and Eve did when God called to them. What are the first things that they reacted to? That where are you? Adam said, well, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and ate. Like, what a thunderhead right there. And you're like, you were right there, Adam. You were right there with her. And you're, you're going to blame it on her? And then when the Lord then turns to Eve, what does she do? Well, the serpent told me to do it. He blamed her. Or the, the, the serpent. Their response to God's call was a blame. So the same thing is true of us. God is calling to us when we resort to blame. And we're trying to ignore this call. Well, I did this because I was lonely. I did this because I was forced to do it by my boss. I did this because everyone else was doing this. If we use this language of blame, know that the Lord is calling out to you. And that's a good thing. When I was in high school, I've told this story several times, but I'll tell it again because it's a very poignant story of how being called out is difficult. When I was in high school, my family had a specific room in our house for computers. And one day I used that computer for ungodly purposes. And a few days later, I heard my mother call out to me from that computer room. As any teenage boy would recall, this is a time of great trepidation. So with great nervousness and angst, I headed down to the room for I knew what was about to occur. I knew that what I, what I did on that computer would result in great consequences and circumstances that I would not like. But here's the thing. When I went down there, what I experienced was anything but that. It was a conversation that I had with my mother that was full of grace and mercy. And that grace and mercy that I experienced in that call from my mom has forever changed my life, even to this day. You see, being called out can be scary. We can be exposed for who we are and what it is we have done. And we don't like the truth about who we are and what it is we've done, if we're honest with ourselves. You know, we, we want to we try to control how we're perceived, but when the truth is known and we are called out, I think this is quite relieving. We might have lied to our spouse. We might have looked at improper images. We might have been overly protective with our children. We might have spent money like we're going, like it's going out of style or that we're the wealthiest person in the world. But here's the truth. When these realities are known about who we are and we're exposed because God knows what it is that's true, it can bring the greatest relief. Perhaps he's calling to you today. Why are you living like that? Why aren't you trusting who I say you are? Why are you trusting that you know the way to live? Trust my way. Where are you? I think his call to us can bring indeed great relief. It's gracious. He doesn't even need to call you. He could have killed you in the moment you sinned. But he does. It's gracious. God is gracious. And when we see that he's gracious, we can control, or we can trust him rather than ourselves in the midst of difficult circumstances. He calls us. He calls us. But he doesn't just call us. And he didn't just call Adam and Eve. He goes a step further. Because what he does secondly in this story is indeed one of the most profound realities of this chapter in the book of Genesis. He clothes us. 
He didn't just call us, he clothes us. Consider the clothes that Adam and Eve fashioned for themselves in their shame. They're fig leaves. These clothes ultimately were insufficient to cover their nakedness and shame because ultimately they couldn't face God. They were hiding. They were ashamed of what they'd done, and they were ashamed of the way they looked. And let's be honest, they should be ashamed of the way they look in those fig leaves. I mean, that's embarrassing. But when they came out and faced God, God in his grace does something profound. He offers them clothes. Not that they had fashioned, but that he had fashioned. Look at verse 21. If you skip down, look at verse 21. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now this word skins is meaningful and significant. It implies that an animal was killed. It's a skin. The blood was shed. And what we have to see is that there's a difference in the clothing that Adam and Eve made, and there's a difference in the clothes that God made. One wasn't a great sacrifice for a tree. A tree loses leaves all the time, but the other required life being spent. One was being pricked off of a, a branch. The other was blood being spilled. This is an important distinction that we must see, that the Lord God provides us clothes but the clothes always come with a cost, and the cost is blood. This is significant because at the root of Adam and Eve's shame was their sin. And when we look at sin, we have to see that when God told them, if the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, that the blood of their own body would be required of them on the day that they sinned. But there was no death of a person on that day. There was the death of an animal. In this verse, what we have, verse 21, we have a foreshadowing of the great sacrificial system that is so important to God's people. In the Old Testament, in, in the temples that were set up, but also in the New Testament, where we look to Jesus, who is the great Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. This sacrificial system is a way that God has provided a sinful people to be in the presence of a holy God through the shedding of blood. Yes, though we are riddled with sin and shame, we can come into the presence of a holy God because we have been clothed with the clothes God has provided. Consider the words of the prophet Isaiah, Old Testament. Listen to what he says, Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. In the presence of God, it is nothing that you have provided that enables you to stand in the presence of God. Nothing. It is simply that God has graciously provided you clothes. 2 Corinthians 5.21, kind of getting at the same thing, says he became sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. You're clothed. You're living. If you are a Christian, if you have trusted him, 
You are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus and you can come confidently before him knowing that he is not going to reject you. He has clothed you. Friends, if God has clothed us with his righteousness because of his grace, how will he not lead us through the difficult circumstances of our life? He has done the greatest thing. He has enabled you to be in the presence of a holy God. And we say this all the time when we confess our sins. What is it that Isaiah said in chapter 6 of his, of his uh, uh, not letter, but I mean, uh, his, his writing, Isaiah 6. Woe unto me, a man of unclean lips. I mean, he sees God, he's like, whoa, okay. And yet here we are, we can stand. Why? Because we are clothed. If God... The Holy One. If God the Holy One enables us to stand into His presence because He's offered us clothes, how will He not lead us through the difficult circumstances of our lives? It is far easier to trust a gracious God, and we have a gracious God. Friends, trust not yourself when life's difficult circumstances arise. Look to God. Trust Him. God calls us. He clothes us. These are very gracious acts of God. He is trustworthy. But there is one more act of great grace that God gives to Adam and Eve in this story. And we have to do a little bit of digging to see this. It's, it's a little uh, unusual. But what we're going to see lastly that he does for Adam and Eve and for us is that he chastens us. C-H-A-S-T-E-N. He chastens us. Now here's a refresher on what the word chastening means. What is ch chastening? To chasten means to have a restraining or moderating effect. It's to, to hold you back. It's like, I, I don't want this to happen to you. In verses 22 through 24, we see God chastening Adam and Eve by removing them from the Garden of Eden. Now look at why he removes them from the Garden of Eden. We, we kind of glance over this all the time. We don't think of this. But you have to think about these things. Why does God not want them to be in the Garden of Eden? And it's a really simple answer. At the end of verse 22, he says, Lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and live forever. We think of it as a punishment. Oh, we can't live in the Garden of Eden anymore. What a great and beautiful place. And of course, yeah, their sin takes them out of it. But God's like, no, I'm taking them out of the Garden of Eden so that they don't live forever. Their ch his chastening was, his, this moderating effect on them was, I don't want you to live forever. Now, this is interesting. Of course, Adam and Eve had access to this tree of life. It's if you will, the fountain of youth of the Bible. But now they had their eyes opened. They were like God, that they knew what good and evil was. And now they understood and, and experienced the, the, the ramifications of their sin. That death was now present all throughout them. That they were experiencing shame. That they experienced guilt because of their sin. But God removed them in the garden so that they wouldn't live forever. And they wouldn't live in the misery of this life forever. Indeed, it feels like a punishment, but what it is, it's a chastening. A chastening from being able to go into the garden and live forever. 
Not long ago, I came across this headline, Silicon Valley's Quest to Live Forever. People like Jeff Bezos and Larry Page, Larry Ellison, and Peter Thiel have become very interested in this fast emerging field of longevity. They are using their money and their resources to discover how humans can cheat death. Now, I'm curious about this longevity. Like you, I like life better than death. But let's consider the other side of the coin for a moment. Do we really want to live that long? Not everyone lives like the super rich. You know, we have bills to pay that can make us sweat. We have to deal with rising inflation. We have to deal with wars and rumors of war. We have to deal with loneliness and low-level anxiety that, that manifests itself regularly throughout our life. Like when our football team loses. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, that's a hard one for some of you here today. We have worry about our children. We have worry and worry and worry. I mean, it's not earth-shattering news for me to tell you that life can be incredibly difficult. So the fact that we could live longer actually means more like living in hell just a little bit longer. But here's the thing. The Lord in his kindness chastens us by giving us death. We don't typically think this way. You see, as Christians, we actually have to, pers- we have to change our perception of death just a little bit differently. I hate death. Death has a sting. But here in this chastening reality, it is a gift to remove us from the misery of this life. You know, instead of seeking longevity like these rich billionaires, I think it's important that we have a shift in our perception of death. Now, as Christians, we can have this shift in perception of death. We have this story where we see that death is a a, a relief from the misery of this life. And that's good. To see death as a, as a gift. But death, ain't, but death ain't the end of our story, is it? Yes, it's a chastening. But it's, it's, a, it's a chastening for a time. Death is a momentary trouble in an eternal life. See, as Christians, we can per- change our perception of death. That it's not just a curse to us. And it can be. it is a curse to us. But it can be a gift because death becomes the very doorway to life. And it's a doorway to life because our Savior himself died. But three days later he rose again. We need to change our perception of death. Yes, we mourn it. But we mourn with great hope that death no longer has its sting. If If you ask me what are people trying to control most in life, They're trying to control living. They don't want to die. You're going to die. Church, you're going to die. You're going to die. But we do not die without hope. Our king has overcome even death itself. It is a momentary trouble in a life that will be spent in eternity. You see how gracious God is, even in his chastening? of removing them from the miseries of this life, living forever. He's so gracious. And yet we don't trust him. Church, he is gracious. One of the most powerful stories, I I would say cringe stories of my life, came when I was in high school. I attended a soccer camp in Colorado where I knew nobody. 
and I wanted desperately to fit in. And as any high schooler would do, he tries to control the situation by just becoming part of the part of the crowd and, and trying to maybe even go above what the crowd says. You got so you got to play good if you're a soccer player. You got to play really good, and then you got to you got to stand out in some other way. And there were some girls there too, and so I wanted to impress these girls. I mean, why wouldn't I, right? I want to control that too. But I fell flat on my face one evening. And I'll never forget this moment for the rest of my life. We were having this scrimmage. And the girls were a part of this. So like it was like ultra, I got impressed. And I was terrible. And I was getting so frustrated at myself. And in the midst of this frustrating moment, I yelled out this loud obscenity. I mean loud. Things that it's truly embarrassing for me to say. And when I yelled that out, there was this family situation. Like all their mouths were down on the floor. Like this, jaws on the floor. Like, and the parents were covering the ears of their little kids. It was so embarrassing. And oh, how I wish I knew the story of this gracious God in that moment. Where I would not feel this deep insecurity in the midst of a situation that I tried desperately to control. Oh, I wanted these people to love me. I wanted these girls to like me. And the things that I used to try to get them to like me and to, to look up to me, they were falling flat on its face. Oh, how I would have known if I would have known that God indeed was gracious. That even when I flop on the soccer field, it's okay. It's high school soccer. Oh, to have known that I would have a beautiful wife one day who loves me for who I am. It would have bring, brought great relief. The Lord knew what he was doing. Oh, how I wish I would have known that. And it's the same for you in the situations that you face. You're going to face difficult circumstances in your life. Even today, you might be facing difficult circumstances in your life. And the question for you is, are you going to trust yourselves or are you going to trust God? And what I want you to know is, Okay, if you're going to trust yourself, there's going to be some consequences. And you might not like them. Or you can trust God, who is full of grace and mercy. Who is full of grace and mercy. <coughs> That's really the question. Church, repent and be loved. Repent of your desire to control every situation of your life. And be loved by the God who does control. And even when you don't, you know, even when the consequence is full of grace. Let me pray. Our Lord, we give thanks. We give thanks for your mercy and your grace. It is astounding to us. We don't deserve you calling out to us. We don't deserve the clothing you provide for us. We don't even deserve this chasing, this perfect discipline that you've given to us. Like, we don't deserve this. How is this even possible? But you do this all the time. And when we look to ourselves, you just continually show yourself to be faithful to your people. And your grace continues over and over and over again. Oh, Lord, may we be a people of faith, looking not to ourselves, but to you. May we trust you. You have shown yourself worthy to be trust. trusted, Lord. Oh, Lord, do this. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.